Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. So, I had a friend that recently went on a cruise, uh, and while they were there, they said that as they were going by an island they didn't recognize, they saw this guy just like running around and waving his arms wildly, and you know he had a long beard and, and looked just kind of just going nuts with his waving and everything. And so the guy ran over, my friend ran over to the captain and said, uh, who is that guy? What, what's happening? And he's like, I don't know, but every year when we pass him, he gets excited like that. So, thanks. I had a choice between that and I have an Einstein joke I might use next time. We'll see. No, nothing kills like Einstein humor, let me tell you. Uh, we are continuing the Amazing Acts series, and this series is so cool. Because it's about not just the book of Acts, but the acts of the disciples, the acts of the church, the, the, the acts that we get to be a part of today. Because we are the church and we are the disciples. So we get to pick up everything we've talked about and everything we're learning about and do it today as the church, as Christians, as disciples. And so as we go through this series, we read about big names like Paul and Peter and James and John. And it's easy to look at them as as quote-unquote biblical heroes, because they were in a way, but they were also just people like us, and what made them the heroes that we know is that they followed God completely, and they gave their lives to Him, and they did things in His name, just as we can do, uh, and so I want to go back to the New Testament reading, which is Acts 15, 35 through 41. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. Uh, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, uh, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul took Silas. Uh, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. So Paul and Barnabas had done a lot together. They had missioned a lot together. They had served a lot together. They'd started church to, churches together. Uh, they had done so much already. And so they're deep in the heart of everything, deep at a time when, when going to church was not legal, when it was looked down upon, when it was dangerous. And so they were doing this because of Jesus. Now, Paul was not just about starting churches. That was a huge part, obviously, especially at this point. But he also had the heart of a pastor, and he wanted to encourage and build the churches that existed. And, and in fact, pretty much the motivation for the second missionary journey was him going back through a bunch of churches that had been started to, to encourage them, to let them know, hey, keep going. We're, we're building other churches. We're building new believers. We're getting everything going. So just be encouraged. Know that God is with us. And so it was such a cool thing to see him learn this as he grew, to change in the way that he did over time from who he was before to who he is now. Now, John Mark, uh, it mentions that he had left them. Paul felt that he'd betrayed them. There, there were some rumblings that John Mark had gone and kind of tattletailed on them and, and, and turned some, some, spilled some hot tea and all of that uh, different things that I probably shouldn't say because I'm not a millennial, but still, uh, it's... It's unknown how much he actually did, but Paul did not like that it had happened. Uh, Paul didn't trust him necessarily at the time. Barnabas, however, thought, hey, he served his time, whatever it was, and, and so they completely disagreed. 
Now, what is cool, what is amazing, what is important is when Luke wrote of this, he didn't say which one was right. He didn't say this is how the argument went. He didn't say this is exactly Paul's case and this is exactly Barnabas's cases and it turned out this, it turned out that. He didn't say any of that because what matters is the fact that they both continued to serve God. They both continued to go and, and, and minister. They both continued, despite the big dispute, despite how personal it got, that they split and went their own ways. Paul and Silas continued one way. Barnabas and John Mark continued another. The odds are both were a little bit right and a little bit wrong, because that's kind of how it works. But what's important, again, is neither of them said, well, I'm just quitting the church. I'm just quitting serving God. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, if you're not going to agree with me, then I'm never going to go do anything that you want to do. They said, okay, we're having a problem here. And, you know, the Hard Knocks crew is filming us, and so this isn't good on camera, and it's not looking great. But we all are here for the same reason. We're here to bring Jesus to everyone, so we're going to continue to do that. And so for Paul, it's like, hey, I don't super agree with what you're doing here, Barnabas, but take him and go. Do good. For, for Barnabas, he's like, hey, you know, I don't agree with how you're handling this, but go with Silas and serve and do that. And so they went off. And that is what's important. That's why it doesn't matter who was right and who was wrong, because they all continued to serve the Lord. And God turned what could have been devastating at an early part of the church into a victory, basically, because now the work was doubled. That doesn't mean that the disagreement was awesome, and it doesn't mean that it's so good that they had a fight. But it means that God can turn anything into victory if we let it. Now, eventually, if you read through and... You know, if you haven't yet, read through all of Paul's letters by second service and we'll talk about it. And so, uh, it shouldn't take too long. But eventually, Paul mentions both John Mark and Barnabas again in a positive light. We have no idea if they ever hung out again. We don't know if they watched the first Super Bowl together. We, we don't know what they did. We just know that Paul understood they continued to do ministry. And Barnabas and John Mark continued to do ministry. And Paul and Silas continued to do ministry. What we do know, Christianity's hard. It is. It can be super hard uh, because so much of it is about that personal relationship with Jesus. And we can all see things so differently that it can be so easy to disagree. It can be so easy to argue. It can be so easy to debate. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things if you do them right. So there are three words that you hear when you study theology and you go through the church and ministry and all of that, and that's dogma, doctrine, and personal conviction. And so dogma, that's the stuff that, that is the most important. That's the stuff that shouldn't change in any church you're ever in. That's, that's that, that God is the creator, that Jesus died for our sins, that salvation is only through him. Those things, like the core, core beliefs is dogma. Doctrine is different a little bit based on it's based on the Bible, but it's through different denominations and churches. Personal conviction is when you're convicted of something personally because of your personal relationship where where you're like, this isn't right for me. It might not matter to somebody else, but for me, this isn't right. The problem is we can mix up all those things sometimes. We can get everything put together in one thing and think that personal convictions are the same as dogma or think that, that doctrine is dogma or whatever it is. And we can get it all mixed up and then we argue over what falls in where and we argue over all of this stuff. In my home church, there were people who left over the color of the carpet. 
And we do that sometimes. Now, you guys probably scoff like, that's silly. But to them, that was vital. I have no idea why. I, I don't know why going to a red carpet, which is a much holier color because of IU, than a blue carpet, which is kind of iffy because of Kentucky. I mean, come on. So, I can keep going with that. I'm not going to. So I don't know what the motivation was, but I know to them they felt it was important. But what happened was not good. But we look at Paul and we look at Barnabas and we see that their disagreement, regardless of what it was, they continued to go forward. Not together, but they continued to go forward. God used that division. Because it's okay to disagree. It's okay to argue. It's okay to debate. If you do it right. If you have the right motivation. If it's because you're all trying to do the right thing for Christ. But you don't let hard feelings. You don't let negativity. You don't let hatred seek in. So I have a quote. I assume it's behind me. It could be a baby picture of me for all I know. But I trust uh, that it's not. Because nobody said gross. Um, There is a giant untapped potential in disagreement, especially if the disagreement is between two or more thoughtful people. Sometimes we look at disagreement as a failure. And it's like, man, we just cannot come to the same point on, on the same thing. Like, it's just we're never going to agree. We're never going to think the same things. But if you're both thoughtful, if you're both seeking to do the right thing, you're both seeking to learn, you're both seeking to help, you're both seeking to serve, that disagreement can actually be good. Because it's about learning about each other. It's about learning what everybody else thinks. It's about sharing. We live in a world that can be very compartmentalized right now. You can have on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or this looks like a TikTok crowd. You can have on whatever it is the people that agree with everything you think. And you can never see any other view. More than that, you can watch the news that agrees with what you think and never see any other view. You can only talk to people that agree with everything you think and never hear any other view. And that's when disagreements really get bad because you're like, how in the world could they think that? Everybody in the world thinks this. But when we realize that it is all about glorifying the Lord, it is all about serving Him, it is all about helping Him, to bring the message to the world, then we realize, okay, disagreeing is okay, but let's do it the right way. Let's talk the right way. Let's share things the right way. You see, if you agree with someone 100% of the time, and they're not named Jesus, and they're not married to you, then what's going on? I mean, for real, there's literally no one in this world that you should agree with 100% of the time. But... That doesn't mean that good can't come from those disagreements. If you look through history, great things start from disagreements. The church had a lot of disagreements in those early days. The disciples would disagree about who to fill Judas' spot with. The disciples would disagree about certain things. But they did it in a, a, a loving way. Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees. But he didn't stop talking to them. He definitely was honest and sometimes harshly so with them. But it was all in the name of trying to show them the truth, trying to help them, but he never shut the door on them. In fact, he talked to Nicodemus a lot. And one of the Pharisees became Paul. 
if everyone involved is thoughtful and looking to learn and looking to serve and trying to do good, then it's okay. It's good. The problem comes when there's other motivations. And so I have another scripture. This is Luke 9, 46 through 50. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts, so he brought a little child to his side. Then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Uh, John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. But we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. So the disciples were human. And so they were concerned with advancement, with promotions, with with being seen as special. And so at the time, Peter, James, and John were kind of considered to be the, the triumvirate at the head of the disciples, just under Jesus. And so all of them would kind of be like, well, what about in heaven? Like, can we move up in heaven? Can, can we, who's going to have the best corner office? I mean, you know, I really want to have that office next to Jesus, and I want to be able to take long lunches and do all this stuff. So I, I want to work my way up. They thought in terms of advancement, of promotion, in terms of raises, and all of these things. And I, I'm struck looking at Jesus' life, looking at his interactions with the disciples, thinking about his interactions with Christians throughout history. The greatest proof of his all-consuming love is that he never gave up on us. Because, man, we mess up a lot. And these are his disciples who were with him every single day. And they're arguing over something that they pretty much know for a fact he would not be in favor of. Because he talked about it all the time. He'd already given the Beatitudes. In fact, Jesus could have stopped all of that by just pointing to himself. But he never would have done that. Because he lived humbly and he lived hopefully and he lived with love. And so instead he talks about a child. And he looks at the child and how the child lives and and what it thinks and, and who he is and how he looks at the world and his innocent faith and his purity. And he says, this is who you should be. So I have a niece and she's four. Her name is Beatrice, Um, but she's a child. And so we go to the mall and museum and different places where there's other kids occasionally. And I always sit and watch her just go play with whoever is, oh, oh, I I always sit and watch her go and play with whoever is there. And she just loves it, and, and, and it means something to her, and she doesn't care where they came from, she doesn't care what they look like, she doesn't care whether she's considered greater than them, she just plays and just is there, and that's what it means to be like a child. And the nature of Jesus is like that, caring, open, loving, hopeful, seeing everyone the same. And he says, the least among you. And the Beatitudes repeat that. Don't compare. When we compare, that's when we mess up. When we compare, that's when things go wrong. Whether we compare positively or negatively. And my favorite thing in this scripture is that the disciples, immediately after Jesus just taught them something like, okay, okay, right, right. Hey, that guy over there is not doing something we like. They immediately compare over there. And Jesus is not saying everybody's right and not saying everybody's truth is the same, but he's saying, Look for the good in others. Look for the good. Look in a hopeful way at other people. My next quote is from Steve Jobs, who did one or two things. 
Our time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. If I could do, and I'm sure you've seen this in illustrations before, but, but a timeline of eternity, and obviously it would be impossible to stretch out infinity, but our life, regardless of how long we live, would not even be a blip on the radar. We wouldn't even notice it because eternity is so long. But we get so caught up in winning. We get so caught up in popularity. We get so caught up in all of these things. So what do we want to do with that time that we have that's so limited? Do we want to spend it comparing ourselves? Do we want to spend it worrying more about someone else and how they're handling something than how we handle it? Do we want to spend it hating? Do we want to spend it being angry and all of these things? And listen, this does not mean don't care. And it doesn't mean don't help. And it doesn't mean don't listen. It means do all of that humbly. I have a friend who goes to the movies or watches TV. And he goes in looking for things to not like it. Looking for criticisms. And so he finds them. Whatever you're looking for when you meet someone, you're going to find it. Because nobody's 100% good. Nobody's 100% bad. But if you look for the negative, if you look for reasons to disagree, if you look for reasons to be angry, if you look for reasons to hate, you will find it. We are to be humble. To be like a child. And that sounds kind of crazy, especially in this world. And so I have another scripture. This is from 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 17. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us, since we believe that Christ died for all. We also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone, so that those who receive, him, receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Maybe it is crazy to think that way, to be humble. The world's never going to understand it. Because in the world, it's about winning, it's about advancing, it's about being the best, about being the most popular. But following Jesus is all of the opposite stuff. If you read through the Beatitudes, it's blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who mourn. No one outside of the walls of a church is probably going to understand that to be motivated by advancement and popularity isn't good long term. But instead, to be motivated by the love of Christ, by the example of Christ, is how we should live. And so it doesn't matter what it looks like. We are created to live for Him. We are created to live with Him. We are created not for ourselves, but to serve. Not to be the greatest, but to point others to the greatest. It's the human view, the human worldview that says you have to win. You have to be the top. Everybody has to agree with you. That view comes from a this world is all we have mentality. You see, we know that's not true. We know that this world is not all we have. In fact, like I just said with the timeline, it's very little of what we have. And Paul talks about viewing Jesus in that way. 
probably he saw Jesus when, he was, when Paul was a Pharisee, before his conversion. So he saw him in a very different way. He saw him as an enemy. He saw him as a rival, as somebody in the way, as somebody that was taking from his power, whatever he saw. But he changed once he realized that Jesus wasn't about that. He changed once he realized what that love could do in his life. But to get people to see that, we have to show them that life. Not just on Sundays. It's easy in here. It's easy if you witness to everybody in here, if you show them how to live, because we all are trying to do the same thing. But out there, when people cut us off, when every road in Ohio is under construction at the same time, and it's almost impossible to get here, it's hard then when people are Michigan fans or Steelers fans or the worst of all, Purdue fans, showing them love, showing them understanding, showing them who we serve can be hard, but look at Jesus' life. Look at Paul's life. Look at all of the disciples' life, the early church, what they faced every day. We have to stop thinking about the human worldview, about the human greatest, about the human political whatever. Instead, look to eternity. Look to the point, not just of being there, but helping others to see that. And I have a final quote from C.S. Lewis, who I've used once or twice. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The Christians who have done the most for this world are the ones who are looking to the next who understand that this world is not all that they have, who understand that this world is just to help others get to that world. You see, again, this does not mean ignore what's going on around you. It doesn't mean don't care. It doesn't mean don't have human things, because obviously we do. But it means to remember our priorities, to remember our calling, to remember our hope is elsewhere, to build what we have. To grow what we have. To help others to see the glory of serving Jesus. To not compare. To not think of someone, oh, I'm doing better than them. Or, man, I'll never match up to them. But to think, what can I learn from this person? How can I listen? How can I grow? How can I help? How can I get better? How can I be more like Jesus? To not fight, to not hate, to not get caught up in all of this stuff that we get caught up in, but to love, to be peace bringers. You see, disagreements are going to happen. And I could go to everyone that's married here and ask, hey, do disagreements ever happen? And all of the wives would say absolutely, and all of the husbands would quietly look down. But so does learning from them and growing from them and getting better. You see, our mission as a church is not just to know Jesus, although that is vital. But it is also to make him known. And we do that in the way that we live, in the way that we disagree, in the way that we still love afterwards, in the way that we move forward together, just like Paul and just like Barnabas. We can do it. We just have to be motivated by Him and not the world.
That's all 